You're listening to Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, the gospel roots of rock and soul. I'm Cece Winans. Stay with me, Lord. Come on. That sweet croon, people around the world recognize it. This voice animates timeless hits like A Change Is Gonna Come and You Send Me. But here, the great Sam Cooke is singing gospel music with his first group, the Soul Stirs. It's 1955 at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles, and they're performing to a sold-out audience of 6,000 people. You know, he had his own style. That's gospel singer and pastor Donald Gay, a member of a legendary gospel family from Chicago. Donald told us he grew up with Sam, singing together in the city's churches. I mean, when Sam came on to sing, everything stopped. Because he was just that great of a voice. you got to remember that there had never been a voice like Sam. I was born by the river. By the mid-1950s, record executives across the country noticed. This would be one of Sam's last performances as a gospel singer. Within months, he'd cross over to Seoul, and within a year, he would be a national sensation who'd crack the door wide for other soul stars from Aretha Franklin to Marvin Gaye. What made it possible in 1955 for a young black gospel singer to catch the attention of the mainstream? Sam arrived at this moment as the inheritor of a vast and complex sacred African-American singing tradition, a legacy without which there would be no gospel music and no Sam Cooke. We'll get back to him later. Gospel music has inspired and created some of the greatest artists and musicians in American culture. At its core, this music is about inspiring people, about carrying them through their worst moments, and of course, about getting them to feel the spirit on Sundays. When I was growing up in Detroit, our family listened to gospel music, and only gospel music. My dad, Pop Winans, was friends with Sam Cooke, and he always would tell us how he refused to follow him from churches into the nightclubs. A steady diet of gospel music didn't mean I was a stranger to variety, though. The gospel music of Andre Crouch and Rance Allen could stand up right next to the great Motown and Stax soul artists. And throughout my career, my music has drawn from and inspired soul, R&B, and pop music. In the groups with my family and as a solo artist, I've topped the gospel and R&B charts. But where does gospel music come from? Before me, before Kirk Franklin, before Mahalia Jackson, before Sam Cooke, before we can even start talking about gospel music, there were spirituals. They originated during the time of American slavery. (laughs) 
In the mid-18th century, more than 100 years after the first enslaved Africans arrived on American soil, and more than 100 years before recordings like this, a religious revival movement spread from New England down and across the southern colonies. Ministers who preached this great awakening called on Christians to respond to their faith, their experience of God, with ecstatic praise. During this time, in the South, masters brought their property to worship services. All of them took in the fervent religious music. There is salvation in everything we do. And let your joys be known. In the fields and away from owners and overseers, slaves develop spiritual practices that mix African aesthetics with these new Christian hymns they were hearing. So you have certain things like the ring shout when they would sing and get in this ring to celebrate. Joyce Jackson is a music scholar at Louisiana State University. You would use the body or you'd use the, the hard floor of if you were in a building and you used that floor as the drum. So there were things, different things you could substitute. Hand clapping, foot stamping, uh, moving in a ring, and all of these things that were very African-centered. The camp meeting revival that moved people to sing, leap, and shout was a phenomenon of this period. Far from where whites could hear, the slaves added an element only they could create. These sons and daughters of Africa took what they had and turned it into something uniquely theirs. How was music used in my life? If you were working in the field, music had a function. If you were cooking in the kitchen, there was a music that had a function. If you were caring for Master's Child, there's a music that had a function. Donald Dumpson is a music minister in Philadelphia and a scholar of African-American spiritual music. Just as they did with food, language, and dress, he told us enslaved people reinterpreted Protestant spirituals to address their joys, sorrows, and hopes. And if you're on a plantation, lived experience could be that I am away from my child, that, that, I, that my, I'm separated from my husband. The lived experience could be that the master done raped me. The lived experience could be that I'm trying to make it through. I mean, it can be any number of things. Slaves used the songs that became known as Negro spirituals to inspire inner courage, to commit to the idea that they'd be free someday, either through emancipation or in the afterlife. It was forbidden to teach the slaves to read and write. How did they document their existence? How did they make their feelings known in a permanent way? They wrote them down in their songs. The late Horace Boyer, a singer and scholar, lectured widely on gospel music history. So you know what they did so that the overseer 
would not stop their road to deliverance. They took the words of the Bible and they communicated. They became the CNN and the Fox and the CBS through the words of the Old Testament. And they said, go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. I want you to know that Egypt land was Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, Donald Dumson says the words of the Negro spirituals contained codes, messages their masters couldn't hear. With the slaves, they were often communicating in a sub-language that the, that the masters and others did not understand. Mask and symbolism, things that did not mean what they, what they said. So we're going to go down to the river and pray. And you're really talking about uh, setting up a time to escape. These songs spoke to collective and individual experiences. They offered release and satisfaction to the singers and to everyone who listened. For almost 150 years, the Fisk Jubilee singers have delivered the news this way. Dawn made my bow to the Lord and I never will turn back. After the Civil War and emancipation, these spirituals shaped the composition and singing style of African-American sacred music. The Fisk Jubilee Singers were the first group to present African-American music to white audiences. They formed during the Reconstruction period to raise money for their newly established college. Around the world, they presented Negro spirituals like Wade in the Water and Swing Low, Sweet Chariot in a high art choral form based on the sounds of European classical music. Fisk University's Paul Kwame. Accounts have said that, you know, during the war, there were soldiers who would sing these songs, but those were individuals. So, but with the Fisk Jubilee Singers, this was really the first time a choral ensemble actually sung these songs. In 1873, they performed for Queen Victoria of Great Britain. She was so taken by their performance that she commissioned a portrait of the traveling a cappella group. White people who hadn't heard, Paul Kwame told us... Did not believe, probably, that black people could sing. What these new audiences did hear is the same music that helped the singers and their ancestors endure, presented as culture that could speak to everyone. The way the songs were sung were, were some of the things that became attractive to the hearers, whether they were white or not. The fact that these were plantation songs that were being sung in harmony in, in many cases made the songs very acceptable both here and in Europe. 
The popularity of the Fisk Jubilee Singers and their success at presenting spirituals to the public encouraged the further evolution of black sacred music. Often the spirituals were rather staid and stately and majestic and kind of slow in tempo. It didn't take long, gospel historian and producer Jerry Zoltan told us, for creativity to change that. Gospel singers began writing new songs uh, that were original, that had a feel of spiritual lyric, but were basically original compositions. Spirituals became a key element of the Holy Church music tradition that was the proving ground for gospel music. Throughout gospel music history and throughout this documentary, you'll hear me and others talk about Christian denominations, Baptist, Pentecostal, Church of God in Christ, Methodist. Different congregations emphasize different doctrines, traditions, worship styles, and approaches to the divine. All of them draw from messages in the music that evolved during slavery, messages delivered to hearts and ears eager, even desperate to hear them. Well, gospel is good news. This is the father of gospel music, the late Thomas A. Dorsey. Gospel, we feel, is a song of good news, a song of good tidings, and it has taken, we've given it that name, and the name has served well, and I think the name holds well. Bob Maravich is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Gospel Music. He spent his career chronicling the history of this music in Chicago. It was the product of sleepless nights and careworn days where you suffered for a whole week under, you know, working in a job that was menial working for people who may not have liked you. But on Sunday morning, in the church, that was your place of worship, your place of safety, and and you could sing those songs and make it through another week as a result. the dawn of the 20th century, Philadelphia-based Methodist pastor Charles Tinley wrote early hymns that highlight the continuity between Negro spirituals and Black gospel. In his composition, We'll Understand It Better By and By, the choir sings, We'll Tell the Story How We've Overcome, for We'll Understand It Better By and By. It's a message as timeless as gospel music. Black gospel music is manifested in sort of a high degree of acculturation. And we have to look at modern religious consciousness. Joyce Jackson of Louisiana State University argues that throughout its history, it can't help but reflect the ever-present turbulence beyond the sanctuary. You know, you have to look at the style, the performance, and it is being revitalized depending on what is going on within the culture and within the history. 
So we have those connections with the roots of traditional African music, and then we move on, you know, as the African-American culture is changing through religion, through politics, economics, the music also changes. Even as the message stays the same, hope, comfort, resilience, the good news. You're listening to Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, the gospel roots of rock and soul. I'm Cece Winans. Starting just over a century ago, hundreds of thousands of African Americans left the South to find better lives elsewhere. In their home region, under Jim Crow, laws regulated just about every part of black people's lives and segregated them from whites in a caste system passed down from slavery. African Americans held little or no power. Those who began to leave for northern cities and the West Coast were part of the first wave of what we call the Great Migration. One of those migrants was a talented young musician who would go on to revolutionize what gospel music could be. Now gospel songwriters come and gospel songwriters go. But did you know I'm the first one that made the market for gospel songs? This is Thomas Dorsey, who many call the father of gospel music, speaking with radio host Studs Terkel in 1961. I went to the churches and uh, sang my songs at the end of the service, those who would let me. But all of the singers who came after, or all of the songwriters that came after, they have a part of Thomas A. Dorsey in their songs. Thomas left his hometown of Atlanta when he was 17. He intended to land in Philadelphia, but ended up in Chicago where some of his relatives lived. As a teenager playing house parties, he'd already developed into a good pianist with a strong ear. So the blues crowd started calling on him in his new home city. When I last night had a great big fight, everything seemed to go I accompanied Ma Rainey for several seasons. Ma Rainey was a star and one of the first blues singers to cut a record. I wrote several blues. I suppose I wrote, uh, recorded, uh, worked on, and played on more than 200 blues songs back in that area. But something was working his nerves. The late nights in Chicago blues clubs weren't doing him any good. A minister advised him to stay off that circuit, to use his music to praise God. Only that could heal him. He gave it a try. I was standing by the bedside of a neighbor who was just about to cross the swelling tide. He would bring his suitcase full of gospel songs to try to sell to the pastors. Those pastors weren't buying. Bob Maravich, the editor of the Journal of Gospel Music, says this is what they told him. This was the devil's music. This was an embarrassing reminder of our past. We did not want 
anyone playing this fan dancing music in our church. Thomas struggled to make ends meet as a gospel songwriter. Saturday night, he worked blues gigs and played churches on Sunday mornings. Tell them I am coming home someday, coming home someday. In 1932, his wife was expecting their first child when he traveled from Chicago to St. Louis. And he said, I'll be back. Again, Bob Marovich. He went to St. Louis for a gospel a workshop, and he found out that she was gravely ill in childbirth when he was there. He hurried back to Chicago only to find out that Nettie, his wife, had passed away the night before. But his day-old child was alive. So he was very despondent about his wife, very thankful that his son was alive, but the next day his son died. In his despair, Thomas spent three days alone in a room with a piano. He emerged from that isolated grief with a new vision and with a new composition that became an enduring gospel hymn, Take My Hand, Precious Lord. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me Bob Maravich told us, and many others agree, that Precious Lord exemplified what gospel music was for. It was his Dorsey story, but as you would say, the congregants just wrecked that church when they heard it. For them, it became an anthem. It was a chance for migrants and old settlers together to say, you know what, we are grieving about what has happened in our own lives. It's a song that expresses profound sadness a song that expresses compassion. I feel the power and history of Precious Lord every time I sing it. Precious Lord is looking at the styles, different styles of black music of the time, uh, talking about blues, talking about jazz, talking about spirituals. Gospel historian Lucius Bell Jr. So taking those experiences into his religious experiences, then he came up with a sound, and that sound is evident in Precious Lord. And when my way near. That sound reached bigger and bigger audiences, not just because he wrote timeless, important songs like Precious Lord and Peace in the Valley, but because he knew how to hustle. He founded a national gospel convention that continues to this day. The musician people used to call Barrel House Tom also became the first black publisher of gospel music. And he had people who would go out to church congregations all around the country. Gospel historian Jerry Zoltan. They would teach this new style of singing gospel. They would bring the sheet music. Uh, and I think that their influence uh, in the world of gospel was probably more within churches as opposed to the groups that were out there trying to make a living at it. The music church folks had rejected because it reminded them too much of the down-home blues became the cornerstone of gospel music. 
I don't see any harm in the music. Blues, jazz, gospel, hymns. The music is just music, and what a sordid place this world would be without any music. So we've got to have music. His blues beats and notes also launched a great gospel singer's career. Precious Lord, take my Thomas and Mahalia Jackson formed an alliance. The singer, a New Orleans native, would perform his new compositions at churches across Chicago. Their musical relationship culminated at one of the lowest points of American 20th century history, when Mahalia sang Precious Lord at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral. Mahalia was Dr. King's favorite singer, and Precious Lord was one of his favorite songs. She told Studs Terkel that sometimes King would phone and ask her to sing that song. It's something like a, a doctor giving you one of those vitamin tablets mm. that revives you, that lets you know that, as Dr. Martin Luther King said, walk together, children, don't you get weary. There's a great camp meeting in the promised land, and this promised land is right here in America. Like Mahalia, Thomas Rose at the same time conditions changed for countless African Americans. In his music, he conveyed the hope and worry they felt as they started new lives in new cities. As he was finding his footing up north, Jubilee gospel quartets were blazing a trail in the south. His success set the table for those musicians to make their way north in the coming years. Audiences wouldn't know what hit them. Next time. My old man was the first to jump off the stage. He jumped off the stage and went down in the audience and sang to the people. That was unheard of. This hour of Saturday night and Sunday morning, The Gospel Roots of Rock and Soul was written and produced by Alex Lewis. For more stories, visit our website at xpngospelroots.org. The Gospel Roots of Rock and Soul has been supported by the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage. The executive producers are Roger LeMay and Bruce Warren. Senior producer, Alex Lewis. Assistant producer, Whitney Jones. Editor, Cheryl Duvall. Mixing by Jeff Town. Our production assistant is Rachel Ishikawa. Archival audio courtesy of NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross, the Studs Turco Radio Archive, the Library of Congress, and Seattle Pacific University. Special thanks to Ann Powers, Robert Merovich, Jerry Zoltan, and Donald Dumpson. I'm Cece Winans. Thanks for listening.
The Gospel Roots of Rock and Soul is presented in collaboration with NPR Music and is produced in Philadelphia by WXPN at the University of Pennsylvania.